welcome to you. We're glad you're here with us this morning. If you're visiting with us, we're really glad that you're here. We want to get to know you. Uh, we'll talk to you again a little bit later in the service. For now, I just encourage you to come and to keep coming. That's what we do. We just come and we just keep coming. That's our secret around here. Uh, that's how we keep going, and that's how we keep going in the faith. We need the saints, we need church, we need worship, and we need the Lord. And so we've got some upcoming services that we're excited about. Next Sunday, we start a new series that we're calling Arise, Shine. Uh, for about six or so Sundays in a row, we'll, we'll talk about this theme of light in the Bible. What is light? In the Bible, light is a lot of things. Light is God. Light is the, the sun and what it radiates. Light is salvation. Light is a person. It is the, Jesus, the sun. Uh, and so we have a lot to talk about from several different passages over the next six weeks as we consider what light is like in the Bible. So I'd encourage you to come to those services and be excited about uh, those messages. Today we're in Matthew 5, though. We've been in a series in the Beatitudes for the last few weeks, and we wrap it up today. There are eight Beatitudes. We've broken it into four different weeks, and today we come to the last. And it may feel, especially after singing Christmas songs, like there's um, a bit of whiplash that takes place. It's not very Christmassy at all. It might seem, but we'll deal with that. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But you know that, that thing that happens in movies when someone says something jarring, when something shocking happens, especially at a party, and someone bumps the record player and there's that sound, and then the music stops. You know that sound? I didn't imitate it so well, but you know what it's like in, in movies. Well, that's sort of like what happens when you come to the end of the Beatitudes. We've been saying as we've been studying them together, all of them are shocking, but this one is the most shocking of them all. So it's sort of fitting that we would sing glorious, happy Christmas songs here on December 11th and be jarred by what we read in Matthew 5, 10 through 12. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As I said, all the Beatitudes have a shock value to them. They they come to us in a seemingly upside-down sort of way. Actually, they're all right-side-up, but speaking to an upside-down world that we live in. But this seems the most upside-down of them all, the most counterintuitive of them all. Put yourself in the shoes of those who would have heard this in the first century. Put yourself in the shoes of those who in those days would have been godly and prayerful and expectant and hopeful and watching for the coming of the Messiah. Like Anna in Luke 2 who was waiting for the redemption of God's people. Or Simeon who was waiting for the coming of the king. Though they were hopeful and though they were watchful, what Jesus said sometimes seemed otherworldly and radical. If you put yourself in the shoes 
of those who would have heard the Sermon on the Mount the first time, the kingdom of God for them means we win. The kingdom of God means peace on earth. They will finally leave us alone, that is, our persecutors. The king arriving means we're the ones on top again. You can imagine someone saying, I can understand being poor in spirit in order to enter God's kingdom. I can understand needing to repent of sin. That was John the Baptist's message. I can understand coming meekly to God in order to enter into his kingdom or hungering and thirsting after righteousness or, or being a peacemaker. Of course, he's coming to bring peace. And so I understand that. I don't have much of a problem with that. But persecution remains in the kingdom? What's that? It intensifies? The followers of the king are going to be mocked and persecuted and subdued and maligned? Here's where I think we can think about how to apply this to Christmas and the celebration of Christmas. I wonder... For you, is Christmas the time of the year when Christianity is a little Christianity is a little more acceptable? It's a little more mainstream. Everyone sort of jumps into our party, and we sort of feel good about it, right? Yeah, maybe they take some of the truth or a lot of the truth out of it, but we sort of own this season. This is ours. We started this. Maybe Christmas is the time of year when Christians feel a little more comfortable to throw some more weight around. Maybe fight for some Starbucks cups that are really Christmassy this year. Maybe shove that happy holidays back at you and put a Merry Christmas in your face. Or if I can put it a little less controversially, we Christians like the comfort of Christmas. We like that God came to us and that he's with us. We like that in the first century they saw God in the flesh when Jesus walked this earth. And one day we all who believe in him will see him. But Christmas is also the celebration of the birth of a suffering king. From infancy he was on the run for his life from King Herod. He is one who came to his own, but his own people didn't receive him. They rejected him. He was one who healed and forgave sins. And the religious leaders then started conspiring how to destroy him. We celebrate the one who came to bless, yes, Yes, the one who makes us sons and daughters of God, as the, the various Beatitudes say. Yes, he came to satisfy the hungry and comfort the mourners. Yes, all of that. But we also celebrate a king who taught us about the blessing of being persecuted. And we better have a place for that in our thinking, even at Christmas. There's good reason for us to give careful attention to this beatitude, not just because it was the most shocking, not just because it's still hard for us to get our arms around today, 
But notice a few other features that highlight its maybe special significance, make it stand out. Notice verses 10 through 12, this, this beatitude, it's the longest of the beatitudes by far. Though verse 11 and 10 begin with blessed are, verse 11 is really just an expansion of verse 10, not a separate beatitude. Notice also that this beatitude is the only one that contains a command. All the others describe. This one prescribes. This one demands. And the demand is that we rejoice and be glad. This beatitude is the only one with a direct address in it. The word you, second person. The others all talk about those who, those who, those who. This one begins with those who. And then verse 11 turns, you, you, you. It gets personal. And it's last in a progression. It seems to be a culmination. There seems to be a certain logic to the Beatitudes. Righteousness is what we lack. That's where it starts. And we have to come to understand that, confess it, acknowledge it, and even feel it. We have to acknowledge our spiritual poverty or we'll never come into the kingdom. We'll never see a need for it. You need to mourn your lack of righteousness. You need to come to God meekly. You need to come hungering and thirsting for a righteousness that you don't have. But for those who come like that, he, he fills them. He satisfies them. He gives them a righteousness that they can't earn. And these humble, hungry, righteous people will then not only be satisfied, but begin to live out righteousness in tangible ways with mercy and purity and peacemaking. And what happens when we live like that? Well, two possibilities. One we won't talk about today, it's in verse 16. You let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's heaven, who's in heaven. That's the hopeful possibility, the one we have before us today. What happens when we live out the Beatitudes? Persecution, being reviled, misrepresented, pain. And yet it's not just bad news, is it? It's not just hopeless, far from it. This is blessed persecution, as odd as that sounds. There are reasons for this persecution that Christians face. There are rewards for it. And there's a proper response that we need to give to it. That's our outline today. There are reasons for it, there are rewards for it, and there's a proper response to it. We'll take a few passes over our three verses with those three headings of reasons and rewards and response. The first will take most of our time, but then after some groundwork is laid, we'll press through the other two. So first, the reasons for blessed persecution. What are the reasons? Our passage gives us two explicit reasons. Verse 10, for righteousness sake. That's why they're persecuted. And verse 11, it's on my account, Jesus says, that they're persecuted. Let's take those one at a time. We're persecuted according to Matthew 5, 
and blessed to be persecuted like this when we're persecuted for righteousness sake, not for obnoxiousness sake, not because of wrongdoing or sin. Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who are confronted by their bosses because they didn't do the job they were paid to do and instead read their Bibles at work. If you can read your Bible at work, great, do it. Don't be ashamed. Do you have a Bible that you like the Bible? You're pro-Bible. But if you're paid to do something besides read your Bible, then you're supposed to do it. We need to get this right because apparently Christians are prone to make this mistake or else it wouldn't come up a few different times in the Bible, especially in 1 Peter. 1 Peter more than once makes the point, don't suffer because you do wrong. Don't think that that's about Jesus or being a Christian. If you suffer for wrong, then you suffer rightly. If people make fun of you for being a vegan, it's not because you're a Christian vegan. It's because you're a silly vegan. (laughs) Sorry. You're persecuted, I know, but you're not persecuted for righteousness sake. Righteousness is Christ-likeness lived out. Righteousness are these beatitudes lived out. And the living out of these first seven Beatitudes, we have to understand, is somewhat of an indirect confrontation to the upside-down world around us. You see, living out spiritual poverty and confessing it as such confronts religious pride, doesn't it? It just implicitly confronts it by saying, I have no hope but that Jesus would save me. It confronts those who think that they have something they can trust in but shouldn't trust themselves. Mourning over sin confronts a culture that is obsessed with levity and lightness and lewdness and dismisses any feelings of guilt. Those who are meek expose the emptiness of self-promotion. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness indirectly confront a world around them that hungers and thirsts for anything and everything but God and his righteousness. Showing mercy exposes the ugliness of the tit-for-tat ethic eye for eye, that kind of thing. You get the point. I don't need to keep working through the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes somewhat indirectly confront those around us. That's one of the reasons why Christians are persecuted. It's for righteousness sake. Paul told Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. All who live godly will suffer persecution. It doesn't mean all the time. It doesn't mean for everything they do. It doesn't mean to the fullest extent. It doesn't mean in the fullest form or in every way. But it's generally true. All who desire to live godly will be persecuted. Is it true of you? Is 1 Peter 4.14 
something of an experience with which you're familiar. 1 Peter 4, 14 says, They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They, the world, or maybe even old friends, suppose a high school student who likes to party and sleep with girls, becomes a Christian, and he quits his partying, drunken, sleeping around ways. Will they be surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery that you used to join in? Won't they malign you? Yeah, they do. They do. They will. They put the pressure on you. But then there's this identification with Christ as one of the reasons for which we can be persecuted. Verse 11, on my account, Jesus says, when we become Christians, most fundamentally we identify with a person not with a new set of rules or even so much a lifestyle or, or set of beliefs, though those things are true. But most fundamentally, we identify with a person. We're Christians, Christians. And so what did this world do to Christ? What, as his follower, would you expect they would do to those who want to walk in his ways and who identify with him? Jesus said in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. A servant isn't greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's a package deal. This is a given. Jesus was persecuted. Those who are like him and follow him and cling to him, they're going to be persecuted in various ways. Philippians 1.29 tells us it's a package deal. It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his name. That's a gift. Your faith and opposition. Think about the prophets of old. That's where our beatitude ends up. At the end of verse 12. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus gives the encouragement here that as you're persecuted, remember, they persecuted the holy, righteous, God-sent prophets of old. They were famous for their, well, facing of persecution. Jesus will say in Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to them. Can you imagine having that reputation as a city? Oh, Albuquerque, Albuquerque, the one that is famous for killing all the preachers. Except prophets in those days were super preachers sent with God's very words for a very distinct purpose to give rebuke and reproof to God's wayward people. And time and time again, kings would lock up these prophets. Priests would beat up these prophets and they would sometimes kill them. The deacon of the New Testament, Stephen, he talked about this in his final sermon right before they stoned him. In fact, this was the final straw before they killed him. Listen, in Acts 7, 
Stephen's preaching this long sermon, and he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, referring to Jesus, whom you betrayed and murdered. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. And they rushed together at him and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. These are prophets. Stephen was in that line of prophets who proclaimed truth in the face of much opposition. And it doesn't stop with Stephen as we know. Here we are living almost 2,000 years later. And we could think, we could take some time this morning to think about the persecution that the early church faced or, or persecution that happens, happened in church history. Tacitus was a historian of the first and second century. And he described Christian persecution at the end of the first century as something like this. They were arrested, then covered over with skins of beasts so as to be torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames, and burned to serve as nightly illumination in Nero's gardens. We could just skip ahead and think of today the persecution that happens in this world, not so much in this country, but according to the U.S. State Department, 60 countries in this world today actively persecute Christians. According to Open Doors USA, a ministry that tracks persecution, listen to this, each month this happens. 322 Christians are killed for their faith. We say it again, 322 Christians are killed for their faith each month. 214 churches or ministry properties are destroyed each month. And 772 acts of violence are committed against Christians for their beliefs, including rape. It's heartbreaking and necessary to read stories that really, to my mind, my experience, seem unthinkable. And yet, we all know they're closer to the experience of the New Testament church and most of the church throughout church history. And so whenever I'm preaching on persecution, I, I often can't help. Maybe I should do it more often. I'm sure I should. I, I go to a, a site that will refresh my memory, give me some latest headlines about what's going on in the world. So this week I read about Susan, who at age 10 in Uganda, she learned of Christ as a guest speaker came into her school and gave the gospel. She believed that day. She became a Christian. She went home and told her dad. Her dad demanded that she renounce Jesus. She refused. He then put a knife to her throat and demanded again that she renounce Jesus. She refused. He then threw her in basically what would be a garage for us with only a mat there on the floor and told her to stay on the mat until she renounced Jesus. He gave her no food, no water. She only survived the three months she was in that 
place because her brother would slide food under the door or even get water to go under that she might pull it up with her hand. And she was only ever found to be in that place when neighbors became concerned for her absence and contacted the authorities. She now says she's not mad at her father. She prays for him. A pastor in the Philippines was gunned down in public right in front of his 12-year-old daughter. He was the girl's only parent, the church's only pastor. And now the church as a whole has been warned that the same will happen to them if they don't vacate their building and hit the road. In Russia, as of July 2016, Christianity can now be considered extremist. Russia now considers extremist, quote, any system of belief supposed to be superior to all others. So I guess they want people thinking they've got subpar religions. We all think ours is better than the others, don't we? And yet Christianity, perhaps more than others, holds that to be true. And so Christians in Russia are now beginning to face fines in prison, prison time under this new law. I read this week of a Chinese pastor who was known for helping orphans and uh, sex traffic victims move from North Korea into China. And he was brutally murdered, it is suspected, by North Korean uh, agents. He was stabbed countless times, disemboweled, and then they put an axe to his head. Many stories are less violent than that. Some are even worse. I hate to read them. I hate to read them to you, but I know at times I need to. We also need to remember that persecution comes in all kinds of different forms. And Jesus alludes to that, doesn't he? Look at the words he uses. Persecuted. That's one of the words. And that means literally physically chased, hunted down, or driven out. That's persecuted. But then he also uses the word revile. That's mockery. That's slander. And then utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. This is lies and misrepresentations. The early church was spoken of like this. They were called evildoers. The lies were just piled up, including blaming Christians for the great fire of Rome, which we now know Nero started. On and on the list goes. They were rumored to, to have orgies because some had heard that uh, they partook of love feasts together, what we call our Lord's Supper. They were said to be incestual because they called each other brother and sister. They were said to be atheists because they wouldn't worship the Roman gods and they couldn't actually show anyone their God. No surprise. Jesus himself faced countless falsehoods and verbal attacks before those beatings and crucifixion which led to his death. They said, he heals and casts out demons by the power of Satan. It doesn't matter, that, do, that, that doesn't make any sense. They said it. On and on the lies went. 
And that's really where this rubs up against us or where we see its most important relevance for us in this country today. For us, most persecution a Christian would face in this country is not a loss of life or even loss of property, not yet, but ridicule perhaps. Maybe being cut off from friends or or family, maybe loss of job, that's possible. Maybe missed opportunities at your job. It can be as small as snickers, glances, and gossip because we're Christians, because of something we won't do, because of something we choose to do, or as big as being the focus of a modern-day witch hunt. Have you seen this played out? I think it was just this last week that Chip and Joanna Gaines, who host that popular HGTV show, uh, Fixer Upper, BuzzFeed did an article on how the church that they're members of believes that marriage should be limited to a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, and therefore connected dots. That therefore, they, Chip and What's his name? Chip and uh, Joanna Gaines must believe the same thing, and that must be why there hasn't been a homosexual couple featured on their show yet. Never mind that they didn't actually say that they do believe what their church believes. They haven't said anything, really. I suspect they do believe what their church believes. Let's hope so. But the witch hunt has started. As of yesterday, when I Googled Chip and Joanna Gaines, the very first suggestion that Google offered me said Chip and Joanna Gaines scandal. That's attached to their name now, at least for now. Who knows how long it lasts? Who knows where it goes from here? A lot of other stories have gone much further than that. Some are still being played out in the courts. Some have been decided with heavy fines against Christians for righteousness sake. Well, we could go on about the reasons for persecution, but let's move on to the rewards. We got the reasons. How about the rewards for blessed persecution? Because we need rewards, right? We need some optimism here. We need some encouragement. Don't miss the very first that we're blessed. Twice in this section, we're told blessed And remember what that word blessed means. It's not defined as the world defines it. I went on Twitter this week and looked up hashtag blessed just to see. I mean, we joke about it, but I didn't actually do it ever. I just sort of see it. I see it a little bit on Facebook. I see it on Twitter. And so I'm looking to see what is the most common hashtag blessed thing out there. Here's what I found. It's not very scientific, but my observation was High school athletes who had a phenomenal game and or got uh, an invitation from a college to play for them, hashtag blessed. Well, that is a blessing. I don't want to, I wish I had that blessing, frankly. It would have been nice to be a, a high school all-star football guy. But, but really, that's not what Jesus meant here. Blessed here means joyful and contented with inner peace. And all that coming from knowing that God approves, that God accepts, to knowing that we're in, knowing that we're his. Martin Lloyd-Jones, remember this? A preacher back in the last century, he said, 
blessed here means God's congratulations. And that must be a wonderful thing to know to be true of yourself. That God says congratulations. It's almost the well done, thou good and faithful servant, before we even get to the end. Blessed. We must care what God thinks of us and what God says of us more than anyone else in this world. It doesn't matter what they say about you at school. It doesn't matter what your former friend, your former friends say about you that isn't true. You may never fix this reputation that's growing that that isn't because of something you've done wrong but something you've done right. It may never be cleared up in this lifetime. It doesn't matter. It's clear with God. He says, blessed. And he also says, woe to you when all people speak well of you. That's one of the rewards, blessed. The others, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10. The kingdom of heaven is God's rule in this world with his king on his throne where his people are under that rule happily and by grace. Jesus rules in the hearts of those who are his and one day he will rule with them all over this world. That's the kingdom of heaven and it's ours. And we have great reward in heaven according to verse 12. Great reward in in heaven. Now, rewards here don't get the wrong idea like it's repayment. You don't earn a great reward by virtue of peacemaking or by virtue of being persecuted. As with all of the Beatitudes, they're not something that earn us what comes on the other side of what we do or how we live. No, that promise. That hope on the other side of the Beatitudes describes what is the gift in reality. You can call it a reward if you want, but it's not repayment. And it's not something that's earned. And yet, it is great. What is, you might wonder, as I did this week, what is the great reward? Sometimes in scripture it's described in terms of various crowns or different labels or titles even, and we wonder, how many crowns are there? Who will have the most? Well, I get all five. Don't think anything like that. Crowns are just symbols of finish line in victory, but it's not a victory that you've earned. So the great reward here, what is it? I don't know what it is, but it's great. It's really great. It's out of this world. It's unthinkable. If Jesus told us, our minds would blow up. He can't put it into words, apparently. And so this can transform how we go about life and the way we think of our relationship with others. I don't need to save face. I, I, I don't care most importantly what you think of me. I don't need to decide what to do based on what will protect my possessions, keep my property. Hebrews 10 you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, an eternal one. 
In fact, did you notice in our verses today in Matthew 5, eternity and the now are sort of mingled together. Those who are blessed are blessed, present tense. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, present tense. And their reward is great in heaven. Isn't that interesting? The reward is now, present tense. It's their reward. Their reward is great. It's great in heaven. That's when it's going to be given and seen and known and fulfilled. There's a now and not yet. There's one more reward for being persecuted. We already talked about it, but let's circle back. Those who are persecuted for righteousness sake and on Jesus's account, they are honored to stand in a great line of faithful persecuted people like Jesus and like the prophets of old. Oh, to be among the prophets. What a privilege. Those prophets which come at the tail end of the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. After all these people like Abraham and Moses are mentioned, you get to these no-name prophets that bear equal honor because of their great suffering for righteousness. We're told some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they may rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, and they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Every Christian is in that old prophetic line representing Jesus to the world and speaking what he says to speak on his behalf. Are you being that prophet that you're already called to be? If you are, then you know sometimes people don't like it. Sometimes they'll be a little bit rude. In other countries, you can get killed for it. There are reasons for this blessed persecution, rewards of it. And then there's thirdly, the response that we should have to blessed persecution. How should we respond when we're persecuted? I've suggested before different F words that can be useful to think about how not to respond to the world and how not to respond to its persecution or malignment. We're not to fight back. We're not to force them to conform to our standards or our beliefs. We're also not to force them to comply with what we think they should do as if we could force them. We can't force them. We know that. We're not to flee. We're not to give up, get out of here go to a commune or a monastery or create a kind of Christian little city where we can just do our Christian lives alone without any sinners around, as if we sinners wouldn't be there. Not any of those Fs, but instead faithfulness, a faithful presence in this world. And what's more 
is that Jesus takes it up a notch here in these Beatitudes. Don't, don't just be faithful. Don't just endure. Rejoice and be glad, verse 12. The only command of these Beatitudes. Rejoice and be glad. Which means that there's a way to get through a kind of season of persecution that doesn't obey this. You get through it. You stayed faithful. You didn't deny him. You didn't cash in your chips and, and cut your losses or something and compromise. But did you rejoice? Oh, I know. It feels to me like I'm asking you and me to jump to the moon in your own strength to rejoice in persecution. But we can, in light of all of those great rewards that we've just been talking about. We rejoice and are glad in them. We know it can be done because people in history have done it. Like Peter and the apostles in Acts 5, who there, there the Sanhedrin council threatened them and said, don't preach anymore. And they said, you do whatever you got to do. It's better for us to obey God rather than man. We can't help but speak the things that we've heard and seen. And so they discussed it some more among the Sanhedrin. They decided to beat them and then let them go and warn them not to speak again. And it says, and they left there rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were Christ-like and they got the Christ-like treatment. And yet the word went out and the gospel went forth and they went out and preached some more. You see, I can't do that. Know that there's a thing called commensurate strength, that God gives commensurate strength for the trial or the testing that you're in. One of the reasons we can't imagine an Acts 5 kind of response to getting beaten up and having our lives threatened for preaching the gospel and rejoicing in it is because we're not in that situation right now. We're not being tested and tried in that sort of way. It doesn't mean that it won't be work when we get there or if we get there. It doesn't mean it won't be a test. It won't be hard. Of course, it will be. It doesn't mean we shouldn't prepare to get there now. But it does mean that there's this thing of commensurate strength. And, and the Lord does seem to give unthinkable faith and strength and power in the midst of unthinkable testing and trying of that faith. How do we respond to blessed persecution? Rejoice, be glad, yes. Be assured of your identification with Christ and your kingdom citizenship when you're persecuted, whether it's light or whether it's heavy. Let this assure you, blessed, he says, are the persecuted. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Let this encourage you. That's really the whole point of all these beatitudes. These are the earmarks of those who are in the kingdom. If you have no familiarity whatsoever with the last earmark, be careful. It's not like you get an 80% in the test. These are snapshots from different angles of those who are in the kingdom, not eight different kinds of people who are all in. If you have no familiarity whatsoever of any kind of persecution for righteousness' sake, go back to 
Beatitude 1. Think about it some more. Spend some time there. Make sure you're blessed and you're in the kingdom of God and that you really do hunger and thirst for a righteousness to be lived out in your life. But if you know something about that persecution, I know you probably don't feel like calling it persecution when someone rolls their eyes at your faith, when someone makes some sort of joke about you and your Bible or your commitments on Sunday or something like that. But, but that's what it is. Jesus said, whenever they revile you, in whatever form, you're blessed. Be assured of your identification with Christ and your kingdom citizenship. Keep looking to the final reward. That's how you respond to the reality and the presence of persecution. Don't underestimate the power of believing in and trusting in and looking to something that doesn't happen yet. It doesn't it's not immediately on the horizon. It's way out there on the horizon. It's a heavenly reward. That can have great power. Paul in Romans 8 says, our present sufferings aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Keep on in your righteousness when you're persecuted. Don't give up. Don't stop identifying with Jesus. Jesus said, those who will be ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of them at my coming. And, and those who will declare me to this world, I will declare them to my Father in heaven. Don't stop identifying with Jesus, no matter the cost. Don't stop proclaiming his truth. You're in the tradition of the prophets of old. Sam Storms says, if you wish to avoid persecution, here's what you must do. Mimic the world standards. Never criticize its values. Keep quiet about the gospel. Laugh at its sordid humor. Smile and keep silent when God's name is mocked and reviled. And be ashamed of Jesus Christ. It is easy to avoid persecution. But how better and blessed is the portrait that's painted in the Beatitudes of those who are in the kingdom. Once when Charles Spurgeon, the preacher, was um, dealing with depression on account of being maligned and misrepresented publicly, even in the papers, his sweet godly wife wrote out the Beatitudes in large letters and put that piece of paper tacked onto the ceiling above his bed. Apparently he'd been in bed a little too much in depression. She wisely pointed him to the Beatitudes. It's like a medicine cabinet for whatever you need, wherever you are. I'd encourage you this year to memorize the Beatitudes. Better than having them on the ceiling above your bed would be to have them forever imprinted upon the memory and in your heart. I need to ask where you stand with Jesus this morning. These words are directed to Christians, but not everyone in this room is a Christian. I have to ask you where you stand with Jesus this morning. These Beatitudes, they size us up. 
We feel wanting, and yet as Christians, we know there's hope, and we're hungry for more. Where are you? How do these Beatitudes size you up this morning? Have you begun to even understand the spiritual bankruptcy of your soul before God that you must come to understand before you can ever get into the kingdom, let alone live out the kingdom in your life? I pray you know Jesus. I pray you know that he died in the place of your sins to bring you to God. And he is able to bring you to God if you would simply call out to him today. Simply acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you believe and you want all that he offers that you've heard here this morning or that you've maybe heard before. Christian, with this Christmas, let us celebrate the whole Christ. Not the baby Jesus, not the king Jesus, the risen one, not the popular Jesus or just the compassionate one, but the one that was persecuted as well, the one who died for sins, the one who came into, into this world to get, reckoned, to get rebels to give up their rebellion and come home and come in. He's merciful to those who will, and that's why he came to die. And that's why those who follow him follow in the wake of suffering, even while they look ahead to great glory and great reward that is not of any of their doing. It is all gift. Let's pray. Oh, Father, again, we thank you for the coming of Jesus, for his righteous life, for his sacrificial death, and for his glorious resurrection. Oh, I pray, Lord, that all of us in this room would know Jesus savingly, that we would know ourselves to be in your kingdom with Jesus as our Savior and King, to be blessed, to be declared by you, to be accepted in and with you. We need that. We also need these beatitudes in our lives and hearts more and more. Help us to grow in them, not just understanding them and moving on or thinking that these are elementary and then going looking for other deeper things. But Lord, may we continue to grow in all of these virtues and grow in all of our longings for what you promise here in these wonderful words of Matthew 5. May they be on our minds throughout this Christmas as we think of the full Christ and all that he is for us and what kind of road he calls us to follow him upon. We pray in his name. Amen.